Bienvenidos to the Conquistadors Trilogy Podcast with your host, Dennis Santanella. Book One, Brothers and Kings by Dennis Santanello. Copyright 2022. Chapter Two. The sunlight in Coronado's abode disappeared. I took another sip of wine. It was a little too sweet for my taste. Coronado leaned in, stretched his arms, and retrieved the bottle. He poured another cup. So, Sardina, what happened after the battle? I heard footsteps and laughter coming from downstairs. Coronado's young daughters, Isabella and Carlotta, raced to the end of the stairhead. They curtsied, bowed gaily, and stood on their tiptoes. Their eyes were bright and filled with excitement. They couldn't have been more than five or six years old. Coronado gingerly cleared his throat. Then both of the girls handed us each a violet rose. Coronado's eyes softened. What is it, my darlings, he said. Mother said supper's ready, one of them said. Tell her we'll be down in an hour. Yes, father. They curtsied again, departed, and raced down the stairs. Then I turned back to Coronado. They're beautiful, I said. They look like their mother. Thank God, Coronado said. Thank God, I repeated. There's another one on the way. Beatrice told me last week. She's due in a month. You must be very proud. I am, Sardina. So, where were we? I forget, I said. No, you don't. We left off with Kerimaka after the battle. Oh, yes. Kerimaka. Please continue, Sardina. I examined the rose and sniffed its petals. I was purely stalling, and Coronado knew it, but I took my time. I gave the rose my full attention. The petals were fresh, and their color was a deep violet that reminded me of the roses my mother used to grow back in Spain. It was full. Its scent was sweet and effervescent. But its stem was covered with sharp thorns. And although I was extremely careful, I pricked my finger and drew a tiny amount of blood. Then Coronado laughed, sighed, and yawned. And I tried to remember.
when the battle was over, a horrible smell permeated throughout the next day. I remember the swirls of black smoke that hovered in the air. It made us choke and gag. But it wasn't until the afternoon that we saw the exact extent of the massacre. When the smoke lifted and we saw just how many bodies were scattered amongst the square, even the most hardened of our men were appalled. I saw some undead Incas hold their intestines in their arms. Their eyes were white. Their pupils were as small as mosquitoes. They crawled and moaned and sputtered, and we stabbed them again for good measure. Some men chased the Incas to the ends of the city and into the jungle, but after they disappeared, the men returned to the square and collectively shrugged their shoulders. As the afternoon progressed, I managed to see Altawalpa stand with a dozen of our men at his side. I heard him sob and cry with loud bursts of anger. The guards threatened him with their swords and escorted him away. But internally, I knew why Altawalpa had cried and why his heart was broken. It was because he was still alive. Because Altawalpa was still alive, he was the main center of coercion. He himself knew the full extent of what his capture had meant. Everything would now be dictated under Spanish terms, and he would have to succumb to every one of their commands. Three guards escorted Altawalpa and transferred him to the lower end of the temple steps. From there, he was shown the corpse of the high priest, who was stabbed multiple times in the back. The translators told Altawalpa that this was the fate he'd share if he were not to comply. He found his servants now enchained by the Spanish. He cried out to them, begging them to tell him what had happened to Manco. But the servants said not a word. In his silent prayers, Altawalpa tried to communicate to his brother and repeated Manco's name over and over. As for the rest of the Incas, the majority of them fled on foot and joined each other, forming individual groups through the jungles of Vilcabamba. With only their songs and prayers, they ran. They ran until they could not run anymore. 
It didn't amount to much some days, but they knew staying in Katimaka meant immediate death, so they ran as far as possible. When they were too tired, they stopped and prayed and waited for the shaman. They sang laments, and their eyes were filled with sorrow. They talked and expressed their uncountable dreams. Some believed that they were still dreaming, still trying to awake from this nightmare. They tried to erase the events of the previous day out of their minds, but deep down, they knew this exercise was pointless. Deep down, they knew the shaman was right. This was truly a pachacute. This was truly the world turned upside down. And indeed, this was only the beginning. Although Altawalpa was still very much alive, he was as good as dead to them. Life was saved for the living, and they ran and hurried out of Katimaka to make sure of their survival. For in their minds, and in all reality, there was only one option, and that was Cusco. The last great city that had to have been saved. Manco's first son, Tito Cuse, and his wife, Cura, joined one of the groups in the first week of the escape. Although they asked many times, there was still no sign of Manco. A group of Incas soon grew from a dozen to about a hundred, and Cura kept close to Tito, holding his hand through the long trek of the jungle. At the time, Tito was only seven years old, but the trauma of that day remained in the child's mind. He remembered every detail. He remembered the faces that were burned. He remembered the heads that were decapitated and the gigantic horses that trampled over the children. He remembered the look of his uncle, Atualpa, how he wept and sobbed as Katimaka burned. But the thought that pervaded Tito's mind the most was of his father, Manco, and whether or not he would ever see him again. For seven nights and six days, Tito waited for his father to return. Each night, his prayers went unanswered. Kerr could see it in Tito's eyes. And as each day drew to a close, she could see the doubt grow into her child's mind. Then, one kind morning arrived. Manco appeared from behind a redwood and outstretched his arms. The hundreds of Incas cheered and cried. Tito leaped into Manco's arms and did not let go. Seconds later, Cora did the same. The excruciating week was over. The family was finally back together. Manco took control of the group and led them towards a hidden path that he and Altawalpa used in times of emergency. Each passing day, his people repeatedly asked where they were going and where was the shaman, but Manco answered neither one, and after a week, the group's demands grew louder. Finally, Manco answered their questions with complete and brutal honesty. He had no idea where they were going, and he had no idea where the shaman was. And of course, more questions arose. What happened to Altawalpa? What will become of Cusco? What are we to do? Again, Manco refused to answer. Instead, he gave his people a look of sympathy, which was the same look he gave when important heads of states had died. In reality, they were about ten miles away from Katimaka, 
they still smelled the smoke of Ketimaka, but they weren't as safe as they knew they should be. Thoughts had crept into Manko's mind as more days passed. Certainly returning to Karimaka was not only absurd, but there was no point in doing so, nor was hiding in Vilcabamba a viable option. Then Manko finally settled on a single thought, and the more he thought about it, the more sense it had made. If he were to make it to Cusco, all would be salvaged. If he could return to Cusco, Manco could not only warn the citizens of the Spanish invaders, but he could also stand his ground and save his empire. But he knew he had to get there before they did. The trek was long and dreadful. Among the thick, wavy vines were gigantic 400-foot redwoods, where bright, nasty black toucans hovered and squawked. And beyond the nest of spiders, the bats shrieked and harmonized with the growls of ocelots and jaguars. The Incas trudged every inch. Manco was careful not to follow the same trails in fear that the Spanish would follow, so he compromised the strategy of creating a new trail every three miles. To the dismay of his followers, this meant trekking under brushes of poisoned ivy that contained snakes and lizards, and three Incas grew violently ill and died immediately. Frustration soon boiled and clamored into the faces of his followers, and after two more days, it was clear to everybody that they were hopelessly lost. We're lost, a handful of them shouted. This is Huscarlan. We'll all be butchered. But their cries went ignored. We keep moving, said Manco. And so they did. But as they looked on to Manco, they noticed his ever-changing face. It was the face of utter fear and tumult. He was terrified. He was their leader now, but there was no shred of confidence on his face. There was only fear and dread. After heavy rains, the sun returned and bold rainbows appeared through the edge of the fallen streams and brooks. But these things went unnoticed to Manco. He looked at them with apathy. He thought of Cusco, and he knew that it was next to fall. He could see the lines of devastation, and the vision he had in the ceremony was now as clear as the full moon. He grew older by the second, and at that moment, Manco paused and sighed. He felt and acknowledged the sheer insurmountable weight of his circumstance. It was simply too much to bear. While I waited in the square, I searched around for Soto, but I couldn't find him. I wanted to see him smile. In reality, I wanted someone to confirm that I wasn't dreaming. I paced around. Blood had dripped from my eyes and mixed with my sweat, but I hardly felt it. I kept pacing. Thousands of corpses remained on the square. Some were stacked in piles, but some remained alone as if purposely discarded. Each corpse I saw seemed bloated and disfigured, and each face was cold and blubbery. Some had their eyes open, 
Some had them shut. Rats crawled out from their crevices, and I wasn't surprised to see some of them gather around the corpses and gnaw at their faces. Then an Inca tackled me to the ground. He put his entire weight on my shoulders, and he choked me with his bare hands. He clenched his teeth and tried to bite my face. Then I heard a shot of a hand cannon, and the Inca's blood splattered onto my face. Five soldiers rushed over and plunged their swords into him, and more blood spilled onto my armor. And when they finished, they heaved the corpse into the pile. I went to the stream to wash my face. I heard men snicker at me as I rushed over, but most of them just looked at me with indifference. When I got to the stream, I washed my face. The water was cold. I blinked several times, but it took a while for me to stand straight. I returned to the square. My hands felt heavy, as if they were someone else's. Then I heard shouts coming from the temple steps. But Gonzalo Pizarro was the loudest. Burn it! Burn it all! So they did. Several men lit torches and went to work. They burned more corpses, and they burned what was left of the temple. When I finally recovered, I saw the square from a distance. The smell of burning flesh and dry blood filled the air. And my God, it was awful. The last thing we burned that day was the magnificent wooden totem pole that the Incas named Molaki. And until that day, it served as the Inca's spiritual vanguard. The Inca women wailed when we came down and drew our torches. But they soon retreated and quickly disappeared. There were many heads carved into that pole. There were heads of snakes and birds and faces of gods that we could not understand. And when we approached the pole and lit it asunder, we were amazed of how quickly it burned. Its charred remnants fell and swirled in the wind. It crackled and sifted. And the flames grew brighter and stronger into a blaze. The wood flew into splinters and scattered along the stone. And in the flash, it was gone. The priests replaced the pole with a 25-foot crucifix of their own, draped in velvet purple satin. We found a crevice and planted it. We crossed ourselves, and the priests recited and prayed the rosary. When it was over, we recited the Lord's Prayer and moved away from the square. We waited for further orders, and the priests looked for any Inca worthy to baptize. In the afternoon, we gathered the slaves, fastened them in chains, and ordered them in rows and squads. I remember there were many, but I never knew the exact number. I just remember their sad, painful walk as they left the square. They looked at the corpses, each corpse a friend, but dead as the stone they laid upon. They walked with fear and dread and shame. The men were quick to lash them as they languished. They prayed, looking up to the gray sky, as if they wished the heavens would pour and flood this land forever, and that their gods would lift them away. But the more they looked up to the sky, the more dismayed they had gotten.
The night was filled with laughter and questions. I was exhausted, and my mouth was dry. The wine I drank poisoned me to a stupor, and the last thing I remembered seeing was the victorious cross that was planted before the temple. Some men were still too excited to sleep, but not me. I slept more than I ever slept in my entire life, but I didn't dream. And in all that blackness, I didn't hear a sound. In the morning, I awoke and saw Soto sitting on a stone. He studied the chessboard and shook his head. Then he looked at me and left. An hour passed. I was still in the daze. I inadvertently ran into many men, and they shoved me, grunted, and cursed at me. Then I found myself in the corner of the city, where stone slab steps crossed into the jungle. And I saw Francisco and Soto converse by a tall tree. I wasn't shocked nor surprised. Clearly, Soto had some influence in the expedition's manners, but it seemed now that Soto was more than just a good friend of Francisco and Almagro, and he had graduated into a general manager of some sort. It was Soto's time to shine, and he knew it very well. Whispers and mumbles were all I heard. I looked at Francisco. He seemed a changed man. His presence seemed tolerable. There was a newfound levity to his personality. Even the way he staggered seemed a bit lighter. And his old, pale, gaunt face turned red and full. For the first time in his life, he looked incredulous. As I thought more about it, the fact was clear. Francisco now held every card in the deck. Of course, the others would have their say, and, and of course, they would eventually intervene. But everyone knew that Francisco had the final word in all matters, and I guess that's what made him smile the most. I saw the events unfold in Francisco's mind, as they most likely did in Soto's. Both Francisco and Soto had come to their realizations. They had reached their endgame. They had captured their enemy king. Later, Hernando and Juan Pizarro had joined the conversation. Gonzalo Pizarro joined soon after, and with him, Almagro and his son, Diego. The question at hand, what to do with their captured king? What to do with Altawalpa? That mighty king. That sad, defeated king. It was a marveling, perplexing, all-too-wonderful problem to have and they converse for minutes on end. Whispers turned into barks, and the Pizarros and Almagros bickered back and forth at each other, with Soto in between. I set up the board and cracked my fingers. They were still smeared with blood. Inexplicably, there was one piece missing. It was a black rook. I searched all over, but I somehow misplaced it. I set up the pieces and waited for someone to take the challenge. I waited for a long time, but there were no takers. The next day came. We waited for our orders. From time to time, I glanced back at the Pizarros and the Almagros. Their voices blared from the steps and above the square, 
and I could hear them barking at each other like hungry dogs. I finally approached Soto and asked him what was happening, but he stood in silence and watched the sun. I saw his mind calculate. It was feverish. I asked him more questions, and he ignored everyone. Later that day, I saw the frightened face of Altawalpa. His mouth quivered. His eyes were lost. We waited for further orders. I saw Francisco stand with Hernando, and walking towards them were Almagro and Soto. For two more hours, Soto consulted with both the Pizarros and Almagros. The Pizarros were in the afternoon, the Almagros at dusk. And for another night, I was left alone with my bastard thoughts. My thoughts were common and obvious. What was going to happen next? How much gold were the Incas hiding? What the hell was taking them so long? Why were they stalling? What was Soto saying to them? But with each thought, I can only imagine. So do we kill him now? Absolutely not. Come on now, he had his time. No, we keep him alive no matter what. That's absurd, don't you see the risk? There's virtually no risk. You're deluded. You're blind. Look, if he's still alive, he could summon even more of his men. Any way you look at it, we're still outnumbered. Don't you see? We're in control. We're in total control. It's absolutely vital that we keep him alive. What do you think, Diego? I say we kill him, or at least torture him for a while. Torture, yes, but we can't kill him. Why? Why? You still haven't given a clear answer. How are we going to find any gold if he's dead? Why are you willing to give it up so easily? Stop insulting me and explain your goddamn thinking. We haven't found any gold. Precisely right. So why kill the only man who knows where it is? This gives us time. We have to use it wisely. And as Altawalpa looked on to the full moon, a tear ran down his eyes and onto his shoulders. His wrist bled. His whole body was soaked in sweat. The lie was now a reality to him. It didn't matter if he were a king or a pauper. The fact was cold and fluid, real and horrible. He was living the unreal. A pachacute. It was absolute and abundant. The smoke cleared. Our search for gold began. We cleared away the bodies and searched blindly through the square. The first hour, we found nothing. Doubt returned, and the men kept swearing. Where is it? Where is it? These goddamn liars. Some men kicked the corpses that lay on the ground. Men raced up to the temple and burnt the Inca statues. Another group of men burnt the Inca's baskets and pottery. Still, we found nothing and our collective doubt grew stronger. Where is it? You lying bastards, where's the gold? Throughout the square, we searched in the frenzy pace. 
the man seethed through their teeth like rabid dogs. Some searched the corpse's mouths to see if they were hiding any gold. Others searched the crevices of the stone walls and floors and wedged their swords up and down. We searched the temples, but after an hour, all we found were mummified corpses wrapped in silk cloth. There was no sign of gold anywhere. I saw Francisco pace up and down the square, but he wasn't searching. He was thinking. Almagro did the same. Soto did too. They didn't say a word to one another, and as I saw the three men do this, I had suddenly realized the difference between the pieces and how they worked along the board. They were composed and in complete control of their emotions. They were old men in every respect of the word. They stood stationed and saw the game ten steps ahead. I marveled at their patience, but my emotions took control. I was caught in the wave of youth and excitement, and I went on searching. Then a voice cried out, Sardina, come here, look! I found Morales hunched over a corpse. He held a shiny black rock and showed it to me. What is this? Morales said in excitement. I examined the rock. Then I turned to Morales, bit my lip, and shook my head. It's a rock, Morales, I said to him. Then I threw it as far as I could. I left the city limits and joined the other men. We searched the land beyond. There were certain moments where I couldn't feel my body. I felt very much like I had felt on the beach in Panama. I remember saying to myself, Where am I? Where am I? I still couldn't tell. I felt as if I were in a trance, and whether evil or holy, it was powerful and strong and lasted the entire day. Then Soto pushed me on the shoulder glared, and shouted, Sardina! Yes, Captain Soto. Take the prisoners. So I did. I joined about a dozen men. We corralled about a hundred Incas onto the square. We shackled them in iron chains and waited for the translators. Then Soto approached and listened to the translation. The translation continued, but Soto's patience had dwindled. Sardina. Yes, Captain Soto. Get the dogs. I went to the ash pit and returned with two dogs. I grabbed hold of the leashes and went back to the square. Go on, Soto said to the translators. Tell them we will unleash these dogs on them if they do not appease us. The dogs barked and pushed forward. They snapped their necks to and fro. Ask them if there's gold. The translators asked, but there was no response. Ask them one more time. Soto found a broken cross. He took the two pieces of wood, lit both ends, and gave them to two of his men. He nodded, and the two men did as they were ordered. They pierced the prisoners in their stomachs with the lit torches, and the resistance ended. The translators relayed, and the locations were given. In the afternoon, they showed us a cove that was a mile down south of the city's limits. We paced around, and the servants pointed downhill to a path of stone that
that was surrounded by tall stone statues and guarded by massive trees. And there it was. Barbaro found it first. He shouted and cried, I found it! I found it! God damn it, it's here! A crowd had formed, and a cacophony of cries had bellowed. The men moved towards Barbaro. He held the hunk of gold up towards the sky, and the men gazed and gawked. I knew it! God damn it! I knew it! Where did he find it? I knew there was more! I moved to get a closer look, but soon another voice cried out. I found another one! Come look! Here's another one! And the crowd swarmed to the new victor. We searched deeper. We dug our swords and bare hands into the hard clay. Our fingers bled. We grinned and laughed, and our eyes lit up like strikes of lightning. At nightfall, the guides brought us a mile down a small cove. We found weaved baskets, strange carvings, and preserved food. But to our dismay, we only discovered a few tiny pearls and emeralds. The men slapped the Inca servants and berated the translators with demands. But the translators said they knew nothing. Shortly after, some men started to howl curses and eventually decapitated the servants. This happened dozens of times. As another day passed, the familiar and comfortable state of misery slowly sunk in once again. It was clear by then Francisco had enough. He made his way into the temple and met with Altawalpa. Among the others inside the temple were the rest of the Pizarros and Almagros, Soto, Valverde, and myself. I saw Altawalpa touch the tomb of his great ancestor, and I heard him cry. Then his servant showed us a hidden room. We entered a room with lit torches. It was bare and filled with cobwebs. Francisco pointed to the corners of the room and darted his eyes to Altawalpa. He watched him sit on his throne, still chained with two Spanish guards behind him. Altawalpa's mouth quivered as if he was trying to remember something. An old song, perhaps. But the more he tried the more he cried. We measured the room. It was 22 feet long and 17 feet wide. We measured again, but it came up the same. 22 by 17 feet. A moment of queer silence followed. The moment had passed. Then Francisco turned to the Inca king and gave his demands. Fill this entire room with gold and we will grant your freedom. Francisco repeated the offer three times, and Altawalpa stared at the ceiling. His face grew sullen and grim, as if he were watching dead angels fall from the sky. Then Francisco nodded his head and let the translators finish. No one said another word. We left the room. Altawalpa remained there with his guards. An hour later, we returned to the very same spot. The translators gathered, and Altawalpa spoke, and the offer was accepted. In the weeks that followed, Altawalpa and his servants led us to a land composed of bushes and small cacti, with gigantic slabs of rock scattered above the valley. Gonzalo led the way and berated the guards for hours at a time. 
our impatience and sheer frustration grew and grew. Further into the valley, the cold wind spun and drove us into twisters of rain and sand. I remember the land being very dry and low in elevation. It was unlike any land in Peru. The elevation tripled, and dense eroded boulders covered every place. The servants pointed to a tiny stream, then they pointed further south. I remained skeptical and expected an ambush at any second. A swarm of bats flew in streams and filled the sky. After another mile, the guides pointed again. And then we saw the caves. There must have been a thousand of them. But to the Incas, these were more than caves. As explained to me by the friars and others, these caves were Inca burial grounds for warriors and noblemen. Is it there? Is it there? repeated the men. The guides only nodded. The men sparked a flame with flimsy pieces of flint and tinder, lit their torches, and we all went inside. The cave was full of cobwebs and dust, and the smell was awful. It reminded me of the smell in Katimaka Square. It was the smell of rotting corpses and llama dung, but it didn't matter, because the further we went into the cave, the more our doubt had dissipated, and our smiles returned. First, we found a pound of rubies besides a rotted wooden tomb. Then we looked above, and all that glimmered was the gold of the heavens. And as the light shone, the men laughed. They squealed with joy, sounding like little girls who found their first love. Oh, my Mary, Mother of Christ. And just for that moment, all that misery felt worth it. It was an ethereal feeling. It was palpable. It was an opium that transcended God Almighty. It, in fact, was God Almighty. We felt all its joy, and we danced in reverie. took all the treasures away from the cave and examined our first evidence. We held the rubies in our hands and studied their sparkle. The servants took us further down the hill and showed us the caves on the south side of the pass. We looked down below. There were even more caves. By the end of the day, new guides approached us and took us five miles south to an uncharted strip of land that was covered in brown and silver rocks. We found yet another cave, and we went inside. We found many rooms. A few minutes passed, then a whole hour. We opened a stone door and saw the glow brimming from underneath. When we went inside, we found the entire room splattered in gold. We stared at the Inca statues. There were rams and eagles carved out of quartz and limestone, and there were statues of bears and snakes and ocelots and pumas with heaps of gold plastered onto them. 
from top to bottom. Then the Incas revealed their war god. It was a 15-foot statue filled to the brim with gold and silver. We marveled and cried, tears of joy, tears of elation. But when our shock was over, we shook our heads and went to work. We stripped off the base of each statue and pried off their backs and headpieces, and we took every ounce of gold we saw. The statues looked strange and naked, but we paid little attention. When the day ended, we returned to the chamber room and dropped the load onto the floor. It filled five feet. The rest of the room was still very much empty, but it wasn't enough. We needed more. Much more. More work was needed. More gold was required. All knew it. All knew it well. It would take a year to fill the entire room, or so we thought. We didn't care. We went back to the caves. We went back to work. And each day was a gift. Again, we took to the cave ceiling, and we focused on the tiny specks scattered along its walls, and we chipped away with our swords. For hours at a time, that's all we did, and the chinks and pings and plops and slinks of fallen rocks were the only sounds we made. The metal was incredibly dense, and after a week, it wore out our swords. The blacksmiths made us pickaxes and shovels that were crafted out of iron ores, and we went back to work. It was work, and it was tiring, but we enjoyed every minute. We sang songs, songs we knew, and songs we forgot. And day after day, we filled the barrels and moved on to another cave. The caves were very good to us, and there was never a bad day of digging. We found more silver in the caves to the south, and more men poured in with pickaxes and shovels. The further we dipped into the darkness, the more gold we found. At the end of the day, our faces were drenched with dirt and sweat, and our hands were bruised and mangled. In a week, we ended up with quite a sum. Yet, the grim reality remained. What we had dug were rocks with gold specks. It wasn't gold in the proper sense. It needed to be melted and multiplied. And that job was left to a half a dozen selected goldsmiths and hallmarkers, which we nicknamed the gold makers. We hadn't much respect or patience for them at first, but when we saw the final product, they became our closest friends. The process baffled us, and it was pure magic to watch them work. Whenever they appeared, we acted like curious children. Day after day, I saw the soupy golden concoction boil, and day after day, the melted gold bubbled. The goop then was placed and pressed and multiplied into thousands of pieces. Then, more gold was pressed into other contraptions. It reminded me of my grandmother's horrible stew that she made for weddings and festivals. But when the final product emerged, I was completely delighted. When the gold simmered, it was startling. And when it cooled, I was speechless. The gold makers remained steadfast and meticulous. And the more gold we piled, 
the more gold they poured and melted, primed and pure. The final product satisfied all, and although the jungle wore us down, we finally held the gold in our hands, and that made all the difference. Then the hall markers made it official, and finally the finished product was transported into bars, coins, and crosses. But it was all gold now. It was gold. It was permanent. The treasurers marked down and tallied every ounce. Every day more gold was produced, and every day we filled the room a little deeper. In a month, the calculations came in. There were 13,000 gold bars. But still, it didn't fill even a sixteenth the size of the chamber room. So we went back to the caves to search for more. The song remained the same. We approached more caves along the south cliff. In all that time, the servants never said a word. They simply did their work, whether they were whipped or not. They carried the loads on their wagons, went back to the caves, and repeated. Their faces remained gray and lifeless, resembling the corpses that we had burned not too long ago. There were times I wish I could tell what they were thinking, and oftentimes I wondered if they were thinking why we were doing this, why gold meant so much to us, why we felt like new men when we found it, and how strange of a creature we were and remained to be. But most of the time, I didn't think of them at all. Most of the time, I marveled at our daily production, and most of the time, I tried not to die of astonishment. Fine mornings blurred into fine months. Piles and piles lay upon the chamber floor. But we didn't count it. We left that job to the treasurers. And my God, were there a slew of them. They wrote on parchments, and their penmanship was horrendous. But they attested that all reports were accurate. Needless to say, no one believed them, and we granted them their daily, well-deserved sneer. The treasurer, Alvar Moldalva, was in charge of the calculations, but even for him, it was hard to keep a straight face at times. Then, one day, the Incas simply revolted. I guess they finally had enough. It was quite a complex little coup, and after an afternoon, they gave us one hell of a resistance. It was obvious the revolt was planned, but it was poorly executed. And once it was over, the majority of the Incas fled. Some of them escaped and ran into the jungle, but most of them were killed. It took quite a while to control the area. The later stages of the afternoon were filled with angst and distrust. But as the day ended, it was certain that this would be the last of the revolts, at least for a while. So we went back to the caves, dug our daily quota, and whipped the Incas a little harder when they refused to show us more. In the time I rested, I studied the Pizarros and tried to draw my own conclusions. Francisco was always in private quarters with Hernando, and there were some times where I just couldn't find Juan. I suppose he was busy doing other things. But the brother who stood out to me the most was Gonzalo.
I understood him the most because he was very simple to understand. Now, that's not to say I related to him. I only understood him because he was the most incurable. The Pizarros all muttered to themselves. Indeed, it might have been a family practice. But none muttered to himself more than Gonzalo. His growls were of a deep baritone. He took pleasure with a different Inca woman every night. But each morning his face was filled with disgust and dissatisfaction. His gratification needed to be instantly quenched. And I wondered how he managed to sleep at night. There were only two occasions where I conversed with Gonzalo. On both occasions, we talked about mere commonalities. But even then, I could tell he wanted something more than gold. It simply was not enough for him. He was yearning for something else. I wondered what raced through his mind, what pleasure was to be gained if there was no end point. But the longer I stared at his face, the more I was convinced that in fact, there was pure evil in this world. Not morally, but spiritually. What was it then? I couldn't tell. He lived in his mind more than any man of the expedition, even more than Soto. And as I stared at his face, I saw the thoughts pour into his mind. Perhaps he was thinking of what to do with the Incas and in what matter. Perhaps he was thinking of what life would be without Francisco and who would take the lead. Perhaps he was thinking of what to say to God when he died. Perhaps. I wanted desperately to play chess with Gonzalo to see what he was really made of. But every time I asked him, he refused. I was shocked at first, but the more I thought, the more I knew the reason. He was afraid of it for I saw the same fear in his face. It was the fear I had when Soto first introduced the game to me. There were too many pieces, too many rules, and too much could go wrong. It was too much of a mystery, too much like real life. But I secretly knew the real reason Gonzalo didn't want to play. I was afraid that he would learn something. And he said what most men say. I cannot waste my time. I didn't blame him, though. There was no pretense to Gonzalo at all. His honesty clearly won the hearts of many. It was refreshing. But sometimes the ferocity of his honesty got in the way of his communication. He had no time for ethics or apologies. He was too busy being Gonzalo. It must have been exhausting. I must admit, though, I did learn a tremendous amount from him. He was forming his own identity. And even though he was the youngest of the Pizarros, he established his character very early. And maybe that was the reason he didn't want to play. He was beyond the game. Or at least that's what he thought. There was angst in his eyes. Deep down, I knew what he wanted. He wanted power. Deep down, he wanted dominance and control. He wanted to be king of his own accord. But he knew he had to share it first and wait his turn. He was simply too young, and he lived in a very old world. 
And perhaps that's what he was doing. Was simply waiting. Waiting for his time. But for the time being, there was much more to be done. Because for the time being, the conquest was far from over. There was plenty more gold to be found. In two months, a quarter of the chamber room was filled. In three months, half of the room. And in eight months, Eltawalpa's promise was there for all to see. The entire chamber room, all 22 feet, every square inch, was filled with gold. You would think the Pizarros would be satisfied. You would think. But rather than marvel, the Pizarros remained quite dubious and emotionless. They were too busy thinking. The brothers talked among themselves. The Amagros did the same. Every day they stared at Altawalpa. Altawalpa's face was not of sadness. It was of pride. He set out to accomplish the deed and fulfill the promise. And he believed with all his heart that the Spanish would grant him his freedom. The final wheelbarrow entered the room, and when the service had finished dumping its contents to the floor, Atawalper turned to the brothers. But the Pizarros just smiled. Atawalper then turned to Almagro and his son, but each of them glared and scowled. Then he whispered in a mild tone and repeated several times. He asked for his release, said the translators to the Pizarros. He asked for his freedom. But there was no reply. Then the brothers left the room. The Omagros followed. Altawalpa screamed at the top of his lungs. He bent his knees with his arms outstretched and begged for the final time for his release. But the guards took their whips and lashed him ceaselessly until they were ordered to stop. The lashes dug straight into his back and Altawalpa wince, fell to the ground, and bled. The room was full, but one could only speculate the Pizarro's next move. No one knew for sure. The next morning we celebrated the feast of St. Andrew. The monks bellowed a solemn prayer, and I awoke and felt blood on my forehead. Every cord was devastating, and the forgotten Latin throttled my mind. I always attested that Latin was ancient and more powerful than our common Spanish. It was mystical and haunting and altogether frightful. And the monks made sure it remained that way. The monks looked to the blue sky and caressed their rosary beads. Valverde's face was always wrinkled and domineering but his face seemed to be at the height of its arrogance that day. He led the opening verse with his booming loud baritone, then sung and slurred his verses to the crowd. Needless to say, he was extremely drunk. Then the monks chose the Incas worthy of baptism. They blessed and caressed the Incas tenderly like wounded lambs. They pressed their hands on the Incas' foreheads and dipped them into the marble fountain. And finally, they became new holy children of God. 
new Christians drowned in subservience. And as they came back to the surface, Valverde slightly struck each of them on their head, slapped them across the cheek, and watched them gag on the holy host. After mass, a great feast was held on the temple steps. A dozen llamas were pitted over a fire and then cooked medium rare. I looked around to see if I could find the Pizarros or Omagros, but I was really looking for soda. After a few minutes of walking from the temple back to the square, I realized they were hiding for a reason. At sundown, I looked at the chessboard and came to the hard conclusion that I had drank too much wine. Darkness came, and so did confusion. A familiar face stared me in the eyes. For a long time, I thought it was Soto, but it wasn't. It was Almagro's son, Diego. He, too, was very drunk, and his face was red with quiet, restless rage. Have a game? he asked. Sure, I said. He defeated me two times out of three. His moves were aggressive, but I caught on to it quickly. Then he told me what would happen in the morning. I didn't believe him at first. He's mine, Diego said. I saw the madness in his mind as he clutched his sword. Why do you want to kill him, I said. Because of what we'll gain, said Diego. And what's that, I asked. The bastard's dead tomorrow, said Diego. That's all you need to know. About fucking time. And with that, Diego scoffed at me and gave me a final glare. Then he disappeared from my sight. I saw him later that night sit in with his father and sharing a jug of wine, but I stayed put. I hadn't the heart to do anything but stare. In the morning, Diego made his daily stroll around the square. Soon, a small crowd formed. Diego shook each Pizarro's hand, and the crowd grew. And I knew too damn well what would happen next. Some time ago, Soto explained to me the importance of the pawn's sacrifice. And this was it in full. Diego made his way towards the temple steps. He held his sword in the air with a point facing upwards, as if a priest carrying a cross. Then, as planned, Diego walked up and slowly made his way to the chained Altawalpa. Jeers erupted into a roar. The Incas were appalled, but our men salivated. Then Diego inched closer and threatened Altawalpa with his sword. He yelled and cursed at him. He pretended to stab him several times, coming inches from his flesh, but he made no contact. He repeated this several times, and each time with a smirk. But to Diego's dismay, Altawalpa did not move. He only glared. Then Diego cut into Altawalpa's cheek. But even then, Altawalpa did not flinch. Diego shouted. Then he repeated a word a dozen times, and the translators dictated. The word was beg. But Altawalpa simply smiled and shook his head.
Then Diego threw down his sword. The whole crowd grew silent. Francisco belted out from the crowd, and the order was given. The guards approached Haltualpa and unleashed him from his chains. The crowd stood stunned. The freed Altawalpa waited for the guards to draw back. When they were far enough, Altawalpa glared at Diego for the final time. Then, without hesitation, Altawalpa dashed in a full sprint and tackled Diego to the ground. He mounted on top of him and threw as many punches as he could. Then he reached out with both hands and strangled Diego with all his might. The guards intervened and pulled Altawalpa off. They surrounded him kicked him to the ground, and wrapped his wrist in chains once more. The Pizarros and Almagros came to the aid of Diego. His entire face was covered in blood. They all nodded at each other and patted Diego on the shoulder, and the plan fell into perfection. Then the Pizarros headed to the center of the square, and the crowd roared on with cheers and shouts. And the trial began. It was a very dark chapter for me to write that um, what this chapter says in my mind when I was writing this, I wanted to really understand the juxtaposition between dreams and nightmares. And with the Spanish, it's all about their dreams. It's all about their wonders. And it's all about, you know, taking in as much gold as they possibly can to fulfill their fantasies and wonders. But for the Incas, it's literally hell on earth. It is a Pachacute. And, you know, at, when I was writing this, I didn't really think of the juxtaposition of these two themes. But now that I'm, I read the audiobook, I'm doing the podcast, I read this, you know, a bunch of times all, all over, I really see the themes sort of connecting and, and them being presented in the way I did. Now, for the Incas, Apachacute, in the Quechian language, literally means the, the world turned upside down. And it's very interesting uh, to learn about other civilizations and their end times. A little backstory on uh, my own Apachacute, my own, my own version of my own personal hell. Uh, was in the span of about three years, from 2006 uh, to about 2010, three and a half years, I lost my grandmother, my aunt, and my father, all within three and a half years. And all three were very, very close to me, 
and all three were very, very dear. And I lost them. And it was literally hell on earth, not having them alive, you know, not seeing their smiles, not having breakfast with them. It, um, personally, it, 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 uh, it tore me apart. And uh, thank God I had, I had a lot of friends to help me cope with it. And, you know, cannabis is a good friend, too. But um, going through those years, that was my own Apache And everybody's going to have their Apache Everybody's going to have their nightmare years. If, if you're human, if you have a soul, you're also going to have to feel some pain, a lot of pain. And for the Incas, I could only imagine the pain that they were going through when their civilization all, all of a sudden changed overnight. But consequently, why it changed was because of just this ferocity, this psychopathic, sociopathic want and desire by the Spanish. And, and that, too, is ultimately human. It's flawed. It's, it's immoral. It's unbelievably denigrating and devastating. But it's the want. It's the desire. And it's the conquest that leads to obsession, that leads to madness, that was the Spanish conquest in its essence. For the Spanish, they were so hypnotized in, in their want and their desire for gold that they didn't see the Inca as human. And that's, that's just a part of humanity that's so... I would say it's not underlooked, but it's underappreciated on how devastatingly evil humans can be. How cruel they can be. It, I mean, we, we understand it in history, we look upon it, but we don't really examine it. And I think that's why people love horror movies. They, they love seeing the nightmare <laughs> and we have to live our own apachacutes otherwise we wouldn't grow otherwise we wouldn't truly understand now for the juxtaposition to work though it has to be evenly distributed and that's what I didn't like about certain movies that um, I, I grew up watching, because they were so one-sided, especially World War II movies. <laughs> World War II movies, uh, my I, I could go on, and one of these podcasts I will talk about uh, my mother's love for World War II movies and how that sort of... Um, this sort of crept into my writing, you know, the man on the mission or the team on a mission or uh, just fighting Nazis and, you know, fighting the Japanese. It, it, it has that bravado in it. And I grew up watching World War II movies with my mom. <laughs> and it really just, um, 
never left my psyche. But one of the things about World War II movies that I, I truly did not like and truly wanted to change was that it was so one-sided. It was an American tale or an English tale. You never saw the German side of the World War II movies or the Russian side, especially the Russian side of the World War II movies. You always saw the American side. You always saw the winner. And while writing the Conquistors, I always, always wanted to see the side of the Native Americans. I wanted to see the side of the Incas. I wanted to see the side of the other tribes, the Pueblo tribes, and, and the second one in, in Devils of the Desert, and, and also the tribes of La Florida, or um, as they were called, the tribes of Timacua, and the tribes of Osita, and Tuscaloosa, and Cofita Chete. I wanted to see their side of the story and, and their characters because it's a trope in storytelling that there's a protagonist, there's an antagonist, and they fight it out and winner take all. And I always thought that was limited. I always thought that was trite. And I always thought that stories could be more dynamic than that. But there was one World War II movie that almost did it. There was glimpses of that dual perspective. But 95% of the movie just went one-sided. And that World War II movie is The Longest Day, 1962. There's only one scene in it that's a dual scene that was truly great. And the scene is a German general talking to someone, a lieutenant or someone. And he just says, sometimes I wonder which side God is on. And, you know, maybe about an hour later, the scene is repeated by an American general or a British general, I forget. And they say the same phrase. Sometimes I wonder which side God is on. Now. In a sense, that's a beautiful juxtaposition. But if you watch the whole movie, you'll understand whose side God is on. <laughs> you'll understand what the producer had in mind. This was an American-British film. It needed American-British dollars. It was 1962. You know, the Germans be damned and fuck them too. Again. Okay. But... A lot of Germans, a lot of innocent Germans died in that war. Yet that movie never really talks about them, does it? No. It talks about the war. It talks about the effort. It talks about the strength that these brave men had. But there was also brave Germans on that battlefield who died because of their beliefs who sacrificed because of their beliefs. How skewed they may have been. They died for their beliefs. And that really wasn't said in that movie. And when I was writing Conquistadors, I said to myself, no, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to show both sides. Because war is truly the most tragic, stupid thing humans do and unfortunately continued to do. But 
if there's ever going to be any progress in this world, if there's ever going to be a world truly free of war, it starts with understanding both sides. It's understanding the people of both sides, the cultures of both sides, the beliefs of both sides, however skewed or strange or terrible. Anyway, you've been listening to the Conquistadors Trilogy podcast. Uh, we just did chapter two of Brothers and Kings, on to chapter three of Brothers and Kings, and more nightmares and dreams. I'm your host, Dennis Santanello, and hasta luego until then. Ta-ta.